It's my pleasure this morning to welcome our guest preacher for today. It is Susanna Muntz, who is the Senior Vice President at Wycliffe uh, Bible Translation, uh, Senior Vice President for Church Partnerships. Susanna is a good friend of Knox. She is also the chair of our uh, ministry partner team for the Missions Hub, and we're so delighted to have Susanna with us to preach God's Word. Would you join me in prayer for her? Gracious God, you are the, the Word that we seek, the Word of life. God, we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us in Scripture. And now, as Susanna preaches, God, we pray for an anointing of your Spirit upon her. We pray that we might listen intently, God, for your voice as she communicates. Uh, We ask for every blessing upon her in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Knox Church, it's so good to be gathered with you this morning. I didn't grow up celebrating Advent or paying attention to it, but I have found as I've gotten older that it comes as the form of permission. Advent is permission to say it's getting dark again. Advent is permission to say we need help and we need hope again. And Advent is permission to hear old stories in a fresh way. Thomas King is a Cherokee German Greek author who says this, The truth about stories is that that's all we are. He then quotes Nigerian storyteller Ben Okri, who says that in a fractured age, when cynicism is God, here is a possible heresy. We live by stories. We also live in them. We live stories that either give our lives meaning or negate it with meaninglessness. This is a story from Genesis 17 of two of our elders, Abram and Sarai. I know that we just heard it, but I'd like us to listen again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abram, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her. And will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. 
There's so much happening in this story, and there are so many pieces that I'm curious about. But I want us to pay attention to one specific pattern, the pattern of particularity, or as Walter Brueggemann calls it, the scandal of concreteness. This is a story about specific names, particular bodies, and distinct lands. The story opens by saying that the Lord appeared to Abram. This sounds quite generic to us, but to those initially listening, this is a specific name that the Hebrews would have used for God. This is the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the God in Genesis 2 who uses his hands to shape and form the bodies of people out of the earth. Yahweh has a face and lungs by by which Yahweh breathes breath into people. Yahweh is close. Yahweh is personal. And Yahweh is intimately tied to the life and the future of Israel. And then this specific life-breathing God, Yahweh, then speaks to specific people who have a name. They are not kings. They are not gods, but they are spoken of with a first name, Abram and Sarai. And he changes their name from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Now, God's name is made up of four sounds, Yahweh, two of which are heh, which is meant to sound like breath. As Abram becomes Abraham, God puts his own name, his own breath, into Abraham's name and Abraham's breath. As Sarai becomes Sarah, God puts his own name, his own breath, in Sarah's name and Sarah's breath. As Perry Stone says in the book, Breath of the Holies, once again, Yahweh's breath is bringing new life. Yahweh's breath creates the possibility of a new name and a new future. The story then shifts from specific names to specific bodies. Sarah is childless. She has likely wept at the pain of not having children, and each month she experiences in her body the reminder that she is barren. And yet there is the promise of a child, of kings and nations. For the men, there is a demand for circumcision, a one-time, and from what I hear from others, a painful experience, which becomes a permanent and visible reminder of physical vulnerability. And yet there is a promise of a multitude of nations. Finally, there is a gift of land, an actual place named Canaan, which is the physical space where the descendants can build homes, farm land, host celebrations, pursue peace, and raise more children. This story is so very specific, particular, and concrete. Why is that? Perhaps it's because the first audience to hear this story was the people of Israel who lived five to six hundred years after Abraham and Sarah. They had just escaped from Egypt and were wandering in the desert. This story is not trying to categorically and permanently define reality, 
nor is it trying to precisely recount history. This is a promise told as a story which is designed to help a traumatized people become rooted and grounded. Israel needed to remember that they have a particular history with God. Israel needed to remember that they take up space in distinct bodies. They needed to remember that there is a specific land where they can live in peace and that God is as close to them as their breath. In the story of Abraham and Sarah, God is reminding Israel of his promises that their names, their bodies, and their future will thrive in a particular land. And that as their memory is being shaped by this story, the Israelites are learning how to hope in God once again. Hope must always be rooted in our collective memory of God because what we remember from the past informs what we can imagine for the future. Hope must also be rooted in our embodied experience with God in the present. Hope requires a sense of God breathing new life into us even today and each day. I was walking with a friend the other day and we stopped abruptly before a bridge. This friend had experienced a great deal of trauma in her life and she shared with me that bridges were a significant trigger so she did everything she could to avoid them. Over the course of our conversation, we decided that she could cross the bridge if we agreed to some simple plans. She would hold a stick in her hand, not for protection, but to ground her body in the present. She would walk in the middle of the bridge so that she had a sense of space. And we would walk side by side, talking together the whole time and describing what we saw around us. At the start of the bridge, my friend's memory of the past was defining her current reality and the future. However, as she held onto the stick and as we walked and talked together, a new experience a new memory was being shaped. She is in no way completely healed of her trauma, but at the end, we celebrated. She threw the stick away. We celebrated that she's made it across, and she commented that in the future, we could cross other bridges together. It sounds odd, but I believe we were embodying healing and hope as we walked together across that bridge. Land, the stick in her hand, and a trustworthy relationship were reshaping her memory and bringing new freedom to think about future possibilities. Again, hope must be rooted in our collective memory of God in the past, as well as our embodied sense of his presence with us today. Church, I woke up thinking about this part in particular for me. I think it's a word for me, and I wonder if it is a word for you. For those of us who've experienced trauma in our lives, or for those of us who are simply living under the trauma of capitalism, of a world marked by domination and separation and segregation, we need to remember that we have bodies. I want to encourage you this very week to take five minutes to sit with your feet on the ground and to pay attention to your embodied experience. Try to articulate to God what it feels like to be in your body. 
and then ask him to increase your capacity to receive a deep sense of his presence with you. It's been my experience that those who have suffered deeply in their bodies and have experienced the presence of God in their bodies have the most capacity for being hopeful for what God would do in the future. So now the question is, did Abraham and Sarah receive what God promised them? There were so many promises that God was making. Thankfully, nearly 1,400 years after the Israelites heard that story while they were in the wilderness, the author of Hebrews 11 tells us the story again of Abraham and Sarah. Let's listen. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city whose foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country not of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Did you catch that? We had all this excitement about God's promise, but this telling in the story of Hebrews said that Abraham and Sarah died and did not receive what was promised. They get sons, but what about nations inhabiting lands? The text tells us that instead of permanently settling, they end up being perpetual wanderers, sojourners living in tents, foreigners in a promised land. What do we do with this telling of the story? What happened to God's promises? How does this story shape our capacity for hope? Walter Brueggemann speaks at length about how to listen to the scriptures as a story. He says, Story offers nothing that is absolutely certain, either by historical certification or by universal affirmation. Yet stories can tell promises towards fulfillment. I want to repeat that again. Stories tell promises towards fulfillment. And when the story is finished, both the teller and the listener are faced with possibilities, with the freedom that the promise may take more than one form of fulfillment. Francis Fox notes that all Old Testament stories are to a certain extent a prophecy because they describe a revelation and divine action which are shown to be incomplete. 
That's why the New Testament echoes and retells so many narratives. The Bible isn't simply telling us stories. It is teaching us how to hear and interpret the story of God's promises over time and discover the fullness of their meaning throughout the generations. As the first century church heard this letter to the Hebrews, they were facing persecution. They were actively being scattered as wanderers and refugees outside the very land that was promised to them. It could be easy to lose hope, believing that God had abandoned them and that God's promises to Abraham and Sarah were void. Instead, the author of Hebrews reminds them, you have a specific history. Your family is Abraham and Sarah. Remember that God has tied their future to his by putting his name in their name. They too lived as wanderers because they wouldn't settle for any city other than the one whose architect and builder was God. The author of this story is saying, hold on, church. The full meaning of this promise made generations ago is still being revealed. And it is in your wandering that it can be seen and welcomed from a distance. We need a hope that is rooted in God's promises, but is wandering towards their fulfillment. Church, your displacement, your desperate longing for things to be made right, your anger at injustice, your unfulfilled dreams, they are not a liability to the fulfillment of God's promises or a sign of God's abandonment. They are not a lack of hope. The wandering and the longing is what preserves us. Without the capacity and the practice of longing, we become apathetic architects of our own hope. We take land that God did not give to us. We design systems of exclusion and separation to make space for our own safety, preference, and belonging. We create identities and hierarchies based on who is foreign and who is not. This is counterfeit faith and the antithesis of the hope to which we have been called. This text is actively trying to unsettle us so that we might renew our longing for a reality of God's kingdom that we have not yet seen. It is inviting those who live in tents to dream of kingdoms yet to come. Like Abraham and Sarah before us, we may have a real picture, but we do not have the whole picture. The meaning of the promise that all nations will belong to God is still being revealed. And so we wait with expectation and watch for signs of hope in the distance. We catch a glimpse of what was promised when we hear of the Mi'kmaq establishing self-regulating fisheries on the East Coast. Yet we long for the day marked by a wholehearted reconciliation as well as shared stewardship of land between indigenous peoples and settlers. We are grateful for doctors and nurses and service providers who are working sacrificially to ensure God's people's well-being and safety. Yet we ache and long for the day when we don't have to experience the tension of preserving physical health at the expense of physical presence. In this season of Advent, I am praying that God would increase our capacity to wander and to wait so that our hopeful imagination won't settle for anything less than a kingdom where all names, all bodies, all families, all nations have a place to be at peace and where God is not ashamed to be called our God. This Advent, I invite you to cultivate a hope that is rooted in God's promises, 
that is rooted in God's presence. But that doesn't settle for anything less than God's restoration of all people and creation. This is a hope that longs for more and wanders with expectation towards God. I'd like to read you one more story to shape our memory and future hope. It comes from the book Unsettling the Word. Walleye and Cod, the creator's spirit had a fishing line to measure Turtle Island. It was perfectly round, stretching equal distance in four directions. Its dimensions were perfect, and its many ecosystems provided abundantly for all God's creatures to live and thrive. Let's pray. God, we need your story today. God, we need your breath today. We need you to remind us how to hope, how to root our hope in your presence, but how to hold out for the hope that is established on what you are doing for all people. Would you visit our bodies today, shape our memories and our imaginations, leave us unsettled, wandering towards you with hopeful expectation. Amen.